Tirena. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about post-Shoah, post-Shoah um, Nagunim, although I don't know if this proceeds or not, is that uh, I think they, they have this, um, a slow part and a fast part. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about music, to comparative music to say how typical this is and other things, but it, it emerges, I think, from this kind of paradoxical um, sorrow and yearning. Um, there's a sorrow and there's a yearning. And also there's a content, uh, or a contentment and a yearning and a sorrow and an ecstasy. And so you hear that in the, in the nigunim. It's not a nigun that's just sad. It's not a nigun that's just ecstatic. It's a nigun that kind of has a slow part and a faster part. Um, and I don't do it justice, of course, because I'm because I, I, I don't have a great voice. But I, it comes from the heart. It comes from the heart. And so um, you can feel in the nigun, you can feel that kind of experience of trauma and glory, of of uh, contentment and yearning. Of um, of sadness and of of joy. So let's see if I can remember this because it's been a while since I've. Uh... Okay, so here's how it goes, and, and um, uh, as usual, I'll do it a few times so you can join in. <clears throat> That's the first part. Hit it and die, and die, and die, and Here's the high part. Back to the beginning. Try to join me now, friends. Hit it, I, 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 I
So, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting because I think for Jews, I think for Jews, this is, of course, not the universal experience, but I think there's kind of like a, um, you see this in a lot of Torahs, a lot of Hasidic Torahs, a, a manic depressant kind of uh, thing going on, highs and lows. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's, you know, those unfair jokes. I mean, they're sweet, perhaps, but they're also kind of unfair. You know, like the Jewish mother jokes, like how you think of like who a Jewish mother is, you know, and how you describe that role. Um, um, but also the way you experience kind of like a, 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 a traditional synagogue kind of uh, energy. Um, and I think there's kind of like this frenetic, there's this frenetic energy of kind of, as we said, traumas and glories of, 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 of this like yearning, this yearning and this uh, calmness. And so a lot of these Nagunim, I, I, I keep finding um, kind of go back and forth between this like calm place and then that, yeah, it's kind of like two nights ago, I was sleeping and my, uh, my three-year-old daughter who sleeps next to me says, he jumps up, he, look, jumps out of the vent. He goes, my, my iPad is outside the window. I said, uh, you must have just had a dream. <laughs> and she laid back down and went to bed. It was like, calm, 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 boom, and then calm. So, so friends, uh, yeah, I, we've had a lot of uh, uh, frenetic uh, last number of years. I hope we can have some calm, a calm year coming up, a calm year coming up. That's going to be a little bit more, a little bit more steady. So today, friends, we're going to talk about matir, matir. Matir means untying a knot, untying a knot, right? Last year was kosher, tying a knot. So this is untying a knot. Here in Malacha 22, we look at Matir to untie a knot. The overall theme of the Malachot is concerned with creation. Remember, all of these Malachot are about creative acts. However, Matir is a rather strange and confusing Malacha because it's not about creating anything. Rather, it's about undoing something that was created. And so for this reason, some classical interpreters actually suggest that Matir only applies when you're doing undoing a knot in order to tie a new knot, a better knot. So through this lens, we understand that indeed, there is a creative action intended ultimately, right? It's, um, it's almost erasing to rewrite. In the Mishkan, knots were used to tie together stitches at the end of fabric. On the biblical level today, we're only concerned with knots that are intended to have some level of permanence at least 24 hours, and to be very tight, such that they are unlikely to become undone. Not very temporary knots, like those created with a shoelace or by tying a necktie. Of course, there are hundreds of different variations of knots. Knots have been crucial to various forms of work throughout history, for sailors, for farmers, and so on. So in our daily life, what does it mean to untie? What does it mean to untie? What does it mean for something untied to become unraveled? Let's start with the self, more specifically with the mind. What is the mind? What is the mind? And could we argue for what some philosophers have called an extended mind, i.e. a mind that doesn't end at the skin and the skull? Perhaps our mind includes the larger enhanced system of data collection and knowledge, which we're connected to. 
Perhaps my iPhone data or my laptop documents are not merely tools, but an extension of my mind since they are reliably accessible. That's the key, reliably accessible. My brain internally and what knowledge I have, I have readily accessible externally are tied together. Yes, they could be untied, of course, but it would take a lot of creative energy to do so. Perhaps the skin is not the boundary of the self. That which has availability and or portability could be part of the self. Actually, it's interesting, tangentially. Um, I saw this meme, and I don't know if the person was making it as a joke or as a as, as serious, but actually, I think there was some, some truth to it. Um, I mean, assuming you buy into this theology. And, and the meme suggested <clears throat> that... Um, uh, that that uh, what's it called when two remind someone remind me the word in Greek thought when two bodies are connected you're born um, connected it's not it's not uh, conjoined no I don't mean like as an accident I mean like as a divine creation uh, two beings are physically connected it's like a mystical idea anyone recalling Greek thought. But yeah, conjoined is, yeah, you're right, Eileen. Conjoined would be how we would talk about it today, like a child with, you know, two heads and one body, yeah. Um, okay, in any case, um, someone said that, 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 that the, the desire for, se for sex theologically emerges from the fact that in the creation story, um, uh, man and woman were created connected. Their physical bodies were created connected. Now, um, that we'd have to think of a theology, what that means for gay folks. Um, but from, a, um, from, from the straight perspective, um, the idea that what men and women are really longing for in a sexual encounter is to go back to that pr primordial state of, of unity, of a physical like connect connectedness. Um, and so, uh, and so, actually, it says, actually, it says over there in Bereshit in Genesis that 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 humans were created basar achat, basar achat, one skin, one skin. And there's different interpretations of that. One um, that, uh, that they should be basar achat, adam and chava, basar achat. And one interpretation of that means that they should get married. They should unite themselves and and physically make themselves ends for each other. They should they should be intimate. And they should be like one skin together. The other interpretation, and I'm forgetting who gives this. I think it's Nachmanides, but I'm blanking at the moment. Says basar achat means means um, uh, uh, reproduction. That the two skins become one, not through intimacy, but by creating a new skin, by creating a child. And that child is basar achat. It is one skin that comes from both of them. And so basar achat, this idea that um, we there's a unity, there's a unity that 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 emerges there. Um, uh, you know, I never thought of this, actually, you know, if we wanted to bring some queer theology into this, you know, there's two, there's two different Genesis chapters there, right? And one in, in, and this is what Soloveitchik plays off, Adam one and Adam two. So in one of them, um, it's egalitarian. Adam and Eve are created in one of the chapters as, as complete separate beings. Salam Elohim, image of God, right? And, um, and both with equal dignity. In the other chapter, right, Adam is created first, and a rib is taken from him, 
right? And Chava is created almost to address his existential loneliness. Woman is created in a way that uh, we might find quite unappealing, right? To address the need that Adam had, right? Um, now, now that story is is very uncompelling. The other story that they're created of equal dignity as separate beings. So why have both chapters, right? Um, one way we can explain that is that one is prescriptive and one is descriptive, right? The descriptive chapter says, oh, women are actually socially treated as unequal. Um, and so we're going to describe that reality of, of the secondary role of as helper rather than um, having any primacy. That's going to be descriptive of the world that humans allow to be. And then we're going to have a prescriptive chapter that says, but I want you to know as God, I create, I create both beings with equal dignity and equal rights and, and affirm that. So, so, um, so, so, uh, so that's one thing to say. I, um, uh, but in any case, <clears throat> in, in the chapter where they're created equally, there we might say Basar Achat is dealing with man and woman who are longing to reunite. In the case where only male is created first and 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 females created second, secondly, well, of course, you know, gender, one might argue, or maybe you wouldn't argue, but you know, uh, I would argue, you know, are social constructions uh, rather than sex, which of course is biological. Um, but in such a case, there is just maleness, and that that and there's a, a desire to reconnect two men together or 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 two women together. Okay, a lot more to say there. But anyways, let's go back to this notion of extended mind. We can come back to this if there's interest. Perhaps the skin is not the boundary of the self. That which has availability or portability could be part of the self. Certainly something may be within the brain but inaccessible, right? such as forgotten data. This is what we jokingly call today senior moments, right? When, oh, we know something, we know something, but I can't grab it. I know it so well and I'm so frustrated. Right? Um, but actually, is that a part of myself? If there's some data which I can't even retrieve, not to mention the unconscious or the subconscious realm, that which is conscious, but I can't even remember, is that the self? Whereas what I can pull out of my iPhone in a second, right? which is not in my brain, but is extended as a part of myself? Is that part of myself? What is actually the self, right? Is my child who is completely with under my autonomy because they don't have their own autonomy when they're, let's say, six months old. They're completely within my care, my responsibility. They have virtually no um, self-responsibility. Is that part of the self? Or is that really, to what degree is that a completely a separate being? Of course, in society, there'll be separate rights, right? Um, I, I can lose custody, right? But, but as, a, as a spiritual concept, is that me? Is that still me? And how do we think, how do we, actually, here's, an, here's another offensive halakhic category uh, on the feminist level. It's called ishto uh, kagufo. Uh, uh, um, a man's wife is like uh, his body, which 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 means um, he has legal responsibilities and um, legal rights in terms of basically what it means. Here's one way to think of it: if she creates damage, he's liable. He's responsible for her. Was the idea in ancient world, right? That if if something comes, if if, if she gains money. It's his money. And if she causes damage, it's his damage, right? That's the way it was understood. He's the societal player, right? And she's an extension of him, right? So obviously, in, in, I'll say modernity, but feminism is not in modernity. Feminism is a very late part of modernity. Um, 
I mean, so 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 really, in the last few decades, we can say our, our understandings of this have have drastically changed, thankfully. Um, but we can we can see where that comes from. So it's a question of what is the self and what's the extension of self, right? And, and I mean, in, in liabilities and damages, that's a separate category. If I have a dog and I know my dog will can bite someone, and that dog bites someone, I'm responsible because um, that's an extension of self. Right? That's how we think of property and property that property that can cause damages. And that's how you think of a child. So it's not totally tr true of children. If my dog bites someone, I'm responsible, right? If my child hurts someone, they don't put me in jail because my child hurt someone, right? In a way that they could if, if I know my dog is dangerous and my dog kills someone, right? Th that one might have uh, serious consequences for that, So, so which is interesting in terms of legally how we think of the self and, and the extension of self. So, okay, but going back to this idea, this, this epistemological question of knowledge and where it emerges from. Um, so with external data being considered part of the mind, we may have questions of ownership when there is shared data. This can raise interesting moral questions, right? What if my extended mind overlaps with your extended mind, right? What is that, whose intellectual property is that? Um, think about it today when everyone's racing for a vaccine um, and it, it's like 95%, it's like three companies hit 95% in like the same week. Like, how does that actually happen? So there's, you know, and there's, there's those ideas out there, you know, that idea when uh, someone else in the room is thinking something and it comes to you more quickly, right? Uh, what do you, it's not ESP. What do you call that? Uh, this idea when some, you know, so the idea that one company gets a vaccine and then it's very quick, or they say that about inventions in general, someone invents something and they haven't even made public what, what it is but someone else invents it very quickly after, right? So, okay, so what happens when a mind starts to unravel? When the mind starts to unravel, when our, or when our laptop breaks and our documents are inaccessible. You ever had that wonderful occasion happen in your life? <laughs> when, what about when our phone is lost along with all our ability to retrieve access to contacts? You remember when you knew your parents' phone number? Or you knew your life partner's phone number, your kid's phone number. You could like like rattle off the number. Okay, so maybe they've had it for twenty years and you still remember it. But uh, I couldn't tell you one friend's phone number, right? That's now that's my that's in my mind because it's in my it's in my extended mind, right? But it's not in my brain. So when our phone is lost, along with all our ability to retrieve access to our contacts, that which used to be stored in the mind, an idea or a phone number, is now expected to exist in our technology, the extended mind. What happens when something else tied tightly together, such as family, unravels? A family is tied together tightly by bonds of obligation. Consider this Talmudic passage about responsibility. Whoever is able to protest against the wrongs of their family and fails to do so is punished for their family's wrongdoings. Whoever is able to protest against the wrongdoings of their fellow citizens and does not do so is punished for the wrongdoings of the people of their city. Whoever is able to protest against the wrongdoings of the world and does not do so is punished for the wrongdoings of the world. Now, we might read this as in three ways, as um, descriptive, prescriptive, and as theologically interventionist. So what does it mean to read it descriptively? It would be to say um, that as a natural consequence, we are bound up. And if we don't stop evils, we ourselves will be harmed, right? 
if the economy goes bad, it goes bad for most people. I mean, we're kind of in a strange moment right now where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, right? And, th and that's not so such an anomaly in history, but generally a depression affects everyone, a recession affects everyone, as opposed to those who have uh, a lot of funds and mutual funds and stocks and real estate are, are banking while unemployment rates continue to increase or, or remain a, a, at a lower place. In any case, the idea that we're bound up together, right? I'm going to protest climate change because I also won't be able to breathe in 20 years, right? And so I will be punished for the wrongdoings of the world because I'm also a part of the world. That's the descriptive version. The prescriptive version is to say, um, I merely hold the guilt. I morally hold the guilt of having the power and privilege to protest against wrongs and choosing not to. My sister says something racist, and I say, you know what? I don't want to rock the boat on Thanksgiving. Let her say her racist stuff. Let's just keep, let's keep the peace. Or I say, actually, I'm the one who's placed at this table to be the one to call her out. And I can, I can, as they say, call her in rather than call her out. Um, and so I can say it privately over, uh, at, you know, washing our hands at the sink rather than in front of all the rest of the family, right? There's a way to do these kinds of things. And then the third idea is on a d divine interventionist level. The idea that not in this world, but in a world beyond, so to speak, there is scharva onesh. Or if you want to say this world, it's called karma, right? In this world, there will be, there will be justice. Those of us who, do, who stood idly by as bypassers, right? Then, then others will stand by us. Right? That's how people talk about um, allyship in a selfish way. I don't want to overstate it as selfish. In a self-interested form of allyship is, geez, we better have allies because if something goes wrong for our community, we hope someone will stand with us. Right. Um, and so let's develop allyship. Um, and at the least, it is transactional. OK, so what does it mean? Jews, Jew, you know, uh, Jewish black relations. OK, now, the, of course, that that, you know, that the white Jews and Jews of color are going to be in dialogue with Gentile Gentiles of color. And so, OK, this might be about Booberian theology and spirituality. We're going to see each other as an end in itself. Or this might be kind of transactional. Like, hey, we're experiencing racism. Are you going to stand with us? And you're experiencing some anti-Semitism. Are we going to stand with you? Right? And if it merely remains transactional, those loyalties aren't going to remain. Because as soon as the as soon as the, the cost is greater than the than um, than the benefit, you're going to drop that ally. Right? Am I going to take any social risks for that allyship? Right. So it's going to have to be a spiritual allyship rather than a transactional allyship. OK, let's keep going. We are tied together in families, in communities and in the world. This means we have rights as well as obligations with those. When those relationships unravel, life becomes complicated and messy. Consider a divorce and how two people divide up the many things that tied them together and to which they are tied, their property and the children in their custody. Right. This is um, if you are the child of divorce or if you yourself have gone through a divorce or, or a number of divorces, you know what this is like. Like. Uh, I just I just realized there were comments over there. Uh, oh, that was all back to the Nagoon. Thank you for those comments in the Nagoon. Yeah. Ah, yes. And Ezra Connecto alone. Yeah. Thank you. OK, so. Um, so, yeah. So these, these divorces, um, are, are, it's really kind of the, the, the quintessential or, or the paradigmatic model of un, an unraveling. Like, how do you unravel custody? How do you unravel finances? How do you unravel a home? Right. How do you unravel a narrative? Um, and it's uh, it, it, it's it's one of the most uh, uh, disrupting things. I mean, thank God we have the rights to divorce and there's still a lot of developments to be made there. Um, but but it really 
in a way that may be similar to Alzheimer's, where a mind can unravel, or other types of uh, 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 degenerative uh, mental uh, states uh, can demonstrate this this notion of unraveling. So indeed, the institution of the family, I know I'm going to sound like, like um, someone yearning for the good old days here, but the institution of the family is at risk in contemporary times. Right? You know, we talk about, oh, the risks of our times, right? So here's what the late sociologist Peter Berger wrote in his, uh, in his book, the, A Rumor of Angels. One influential line of modern thought has argued that the family is in need not of change, but abolition. Karl Marx suggested that the bourgeois family lay at the heart of the capitalist economy. Radical post-Freudians argued that it was a source of the psychological distress, schizophrenia especially. Feminists like Shulamit Firestone saw it as the perpetuation of patriarchy. Sir Edmund Leach, in a famous sentence in his Reith lectures, summed it up when he said that far from being the basis of the good society, the family with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets is the source of all discontents. <laughs> so this might really resonate for you, the critique of the family structure. Or if you're an old school traditionalist like me, you might want to defend the family unit, right? Um, and so, uh, so it's an interesting question for us to return to of how we think of the family today. You know, it's interesting. I saw an article a few days ago that I sent to some, um, some, some single friends in their 70s um, um, that was about how uh, more and more single men in their um, in their uh, roughly in their 70s more and more want uh, to live with their partner, you know their their um, their uh, non-married partner. Um, whereas women, rapidly increasing numbers, more and more don't want to live with with their partner. Um, you know that. Uh, it, it challenges those those uh, those gender stereotypes we, we we had held that women that women more than men really want the the want, want a family unit, and in this case, uh, many more men. According to the study, I don't know how com how complete it is, but it, but it resonated for the people I shared it with that men more and more want to move in and live together with their partner um, when they're single. And uh, I, I, again, I'm just dealing with with straight couples here. Uh, it'd be interesting to look at uh, at gay couples. My my sense actually with gay couples it was the opposite trend. That there was an increasing desire uh, to live together, but but um, this is just again from limited articles I've seen. In any case, but women more and more want to want to to have, have a partner, but uh, who are who are not married anymore for whatever reason, but want to live alone. Okay. While families now building off Berger, Berger here, while families can always be improved, the foundational basis of the of the Torah is the family. Our Torah is the story of a people, of a family, of many families making up one family. Consider that the first commandment, the first mitzvah in the Torah, anyone remember? Is to have children. Peru or vu is the first mitzvah of the Torah. The, by the way, just tangentially, the, the Mayam Loez, a fascinating commentator, he describes the mitzvah of peru or vu to be intellectually and spiritually creative. Right? Because you might say, no, the, the mitzvah only applies when I'm I'm th these ages and in this life stage. Um, and he says, no, actually, that Peru Vu means to emulate God in creative acts. And, and, and the, the best of that uh, or the pinnacle of that is um, creating life, creating life, that God creates human life. And so, too, the affirmation of life when we create a child. Um, and I would actually argue that adopting a child 
would be an act of uh, of Purvu, you know, in some sense. It's a fulfillment of the mitzvah of Purvu. You're not giving birth, of course, but you are giving a child um, life in a, in a in a certain sense. So, anyways, he argues that we can fulfill that mitzvah to emulate God through spiritual and and, uh, and intellectual creativity. Actually, it's funny, you know. Uh, some of you know my father used to run Crayola Crayons when I was a kid in the '80s. He was the president of Crayola Crayons, and um, and he came home, and my parents came home one day. I have a lot more sympathy for this, this these days. And I had uh, I had taken markers and drawn over all the walls, all the walls in the in our in our uh, in our home. And my mother scolded me. What are you doing, marker all the walls? And my father looked at it and he said, "There's got to be a washable one. There's got to be a washable one." And he and he invented the washable marker. That was the invention of the washable marker. So, so uh, you, if, if if you've ever had kids draw on your walls with a washable marker, you can thank you can thank my father. And he just moved to Scottsdale, so you can thank him in person <laughs> if you live in Scottsdale. Uh, but now these days, uh, you know, uh, my kids find pens, they find uh, permanent markers. I mean, our our walls are like. Uh, <laughs> any case, so uh, anyways, my father was uh, was engaging in this uh, in this uh, creative act. The family is an institution for us to defend. Even as it evolves, the knots can become untied, but we must tie them again when possible. How will we make the knot tight? A tight knot may feel suffocating and confining. How can we allow for freedom and individuality while keeping the knot tight? Of course, in, fa in community, family extends further. Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow reports that in answer to the question, if someone in your family became seriously ill, who would you count on for help? 86% of regular attendees replied that it would be someone in their congregation. 50% said someone at work. 35% referred to public agencies. The religiously committed were more likely to have a neighbor voted in local elections, attended neighborhood meetings, contributed to charitable appeals, and performed voluntary work. Now, here I want to make a politically conservative argument um, that, uh, on a, that um, as, as an overgeneralization, um, with lots of exceptions, we typically have said that liberals support bigger government and conservatives support smaller government, right? Of course, there's lots of historical exceptions to that in terms of spending um, and how those operate. But in general, um, the liberal approach today is that government should take more responsibility for the vulnerable. And the conservative argument is that society, individuals, and communities should take more responsibility for the vulnerable, not the government, um, which is which is obviously interconnected with with uh, philosophies of taxation. But here I want to make uh, an argument that leans in the politically conservative direction without going fully in that direction by by saying that um, um, actually um, the, there are serious needs that are met by communities, by communities. It can't simply be that we break down society into individuals and governments, right? That all individuals have rights and all government, the government has obligations, but rather it is true that not every, um, that not, the individuals do not have all rights and privileges. And it's also true that governments do not have all obligations. There are other spaces. The corporate sphere has obligations. 
communities have obligations. What does it look like to hold those different spaces together? Government obligations, individual rights, communal needs and communal obligations. If 86% of regular attendees replied that they that if they needed someone, they would turn to their extended family, which they call their community. We better be sure those communities don't break down. If all we have left is individual and government, or maybe family and government, which is hard for people who don't have family, which is increasing numbers of those who have been divorced, those who are single, those who are widows, um, those for various, you know, all kinds of reasons, um, live alone. Um, um, we need to invest in community um, and understand the role of that community and then work, I, you know, that those who aren't in community or have colleagues at work, 50% say they turn to someone at work. Okay, I'm not going to call someone at my church or synagogue, you know, to help me in my crisis. I'm going to call my colleague at work. Interesting. 35% public agencies. Public agencies. Okay, why would I go to some bureaucratic machine if I can go to my friend or colleague or community person that I, I pray next to every Friday night? Okay. So anyways, so, so that's worth now. And this is the idea that in the best of it, we talk about as extended family. Now today, that one of the reasons the synagogue model is broken um, is because the synagogue model is transactional. You're going to pay a certain amount and you're going to get certain things in return for what you pay for, right? That's the way many people think of their synagogues. Um, and if I'm not getting enough, I'm just not going to join. I'll just pay for the one thing I want to go to, right? Or the two things I'm going to participate in. You know, maybe if 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 the gates if the gates are really high holidays, ah, I'll skip high holidays. I'll go to those five things that are free. You know, I don't need to be affiliated or be a member if I can still benefit in other ways, right? It's transactional. It's not a family. It's not a community. Now, um, um, of course, part of that is how often do you show up? You know, it's hard to really consider someone a, a close family member if you see them once every 10 years. If you have a custom of every Pesach Seder or every Thanksgiving dinner or once every two months you get together in some fashion, right? So there's a, a connection. If you only show up at your synagogue once a year, that's not a community. You know, that's an experience, right? So that's why in, in orthodoxy, where there's an expectation you show up every week, actually in most of orthodoxy, for men at least, every day you show up. Right. So then there's something that kind of happens there. Right. One of the challenges for liberal uh, and in this case, I just mean liberal by non-orthodox uh, congregations is how do we build those as sustainable communities when people don't see each other daily or even weekly? If people if you show up at your synagogue once a month, you're like a really diehard synagogue attendant. Right. Once a month is a lot. Whereas if you showed up once a month at an orthodox synagogue, you'd be like, knew where you've been. You've been sick. You go out of town, like what's what, what's happening? So it's it's an interesting challenge. Now, of course, I, I'm making a mistake by defining community as synagogues. If only 15% of American Jews are affiliated with synagogues, what does American Jewish communities look like? What are micro communities? And here, I don't even mean what we've called micro communities for decades, things like chavuras or little study groups or things like that, which are wonderful things. But there's other informal types of micro Jewish communities that emerge, right? And how do we invest in those? Um, how do we invest in those? Because more and more, that's the way people affiliate is not with major institutions, but with micro informal communities for various reasons, num mainly 
Uh, well, actually, two two main reasons I would suggest. One is because of the lack of barriers to entry, uh, and second is that um, more and more we want boutique. We want boutique. I'm I, I'm a black Jew. I want to be with black Jews, right? Here I'm like far left ideologically. I want to pray with people far left ideologically, right? I'm an Israeli, so I only want to be with Israelis, right? It, 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 and then it goes even further. Right. I'm, I, you know, I'm an empty nester. I want to be with empty nesters. I, I have I, we have children ages two to five. I want to be with other young families who have kids ages two to five. Right. And this is the breakdown of, 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 of the beauty of multi-generational, you know, pluralistic communities that people want to be in micro communities that look just like them, that feel totally comfortable. Now, there's something beautiful and powerful of that, of being with like minded people. But there's also challenges of how do you sustain that? Who sustains that? OK. I'm sorry, I'm taking a lot of tangents here. I'm sorry. Okay, all right, let me move on. I would humbly submit that the Shema prayer, the Shema, is phrased Bechol Levavecha and not Bilevavecha, because Chol, all, all my heart transcends the self. If it said in my heart, that would mean in my heart. But it, with all of my heart, right? What is all? extends beyond the skin. That is to say, my heart, my essence, includes what is outside of me. My heart is divided into so many pieces, a piece reaching to God, one to Torah, others to my spouse, children, broader family, Klal Yisrael, humanity, animals, beyond, beyond. And through those relationships, we can also love God. To say, in my heart, would limit love to my own life of affect. As the Baal Shem Tov taught, one can't say Shema until one feels love for others in the room. Once our hearts begin to transcend ourselves, each heart has the permission and ability to reach the heavens. Actually, this is one of the ways we might understand empathy. If all I have is sympathy or pity, then nothing outside of me controls my emotional state, right? But if I have empathy, as soon as I see my child or my spouse or someone I love cry, it brings me to tears, right? Because I'm not fully in control of my heart. My heart is beyond me. And someone else feeling pain immediately triggers a pain in me, right? And so where do we allow our heart to extend? Where do we allow the vulnerability to extend such that the empathy um, is able to, to be felt so deeply? Now, uh, okay, okay, let me keep going. We're not obligated to each other. We're not only obligated to each other. We also learn to forgive each other. Here's what Rav Cook writes. One who grieves constantly for their sins and the sins of the world must constantly forgive and absolve themselves and the whole world. And in so doing draws forgiveness and a light of loving kindness unto all of being and bring joy to God and to God's creatures. One must first forgive themselves and afterward cast a broad forgiveness over all, the nearest to them first, on the branches of the roots of the soul and on their family, their loved ones, their generation, and their world and all worlds. And thus is revealed all the good that is hidden away in everything. And they attain the blessing of Avraham, since there is no generation in which his likeness does not emerge. So here we see not only of loving others and of feeling empathy, but the power of forgiving, of absolving, 
um, and the joy that can come that can extend it beyond us, the gift that we give to self and to others through this power of, of forgiveness and how it extends in an interconnected fashion, this power of forgiveness. We learn how to untie the pain and resentment in us and let go of the tight grip. Indeed, some knots we wish to never untie. Other knots we can learn to untie and release. This is why matir, meaning to permit, is connected to matir, to untie, right? If a rabbi permits something um, or, uh, um, or legally something is made permissive, it's called to be matir, right? To be matir. So that's interesting. To permit something is the same word as to untie. We release one of an obligation. In a divorce, one is matir. One is permitted to meet others. One is released from the knot. So too in leaving a job or other formal relationship, one is matir. Our society works not only because we have tight knots, but also because we can have the freedom to release certain obligations and grant others autonomy. This dichotomy of knots, perhaps we can even call it a knotty dialectic, is reflected in the blessing we say each morning, ending with the words, Matir Asurim, Matir Asurim. The extended translation of these words reads the blessing as recognizing the divine power to free those in captivity, Matir Asurim. But it also might be understood to mean the, that grants freedom to those who are bound in place by stultified thinking. On one level, we all yearn for that sort of freedom. It can also mean permit the forbidden, permit the forbidden. We need to remind ourselves that it is attainable, although we should make our own effort to untie the knots that hold us back rather than simply waiting passively to be freed. To conclude, on Shabbat, we reflect, which knots must I keep tight? Which knots must I untie, allowing me to choose a new type of knot? After all, there's hundreds of different kinds of knots to choose from. So which ones are the best to pull tight and which ones to let loose? Only experience, patience, and the ability to look inwards will allow us to know for sure. Let me say one thing before we open it up and we'll, uh, let's move to gallery mode. Um, is um, that this, it, for any of you who engage in meditation, this might be a fun meditation uh, to do in, in the morning. Which, um, which knot am I going to strengthen today? Which knot am I going to tighten? And which knot do I need to untie and unravel? Um, and each day to think about that. Where, where are we holding on too tightly? And where do we need to, to tighten? Okay, let's, uh, let's open it up, please. Sorry, I went so oh, If I can, a few comments and that's so interesting. Just happened today. I, I had, um, I just had knee replacement surgery. So my, my staples were taken out today, right? Which oh, is a patient, a little bit painful to go through, but boy, it feels good when it's done. So when I think like in life, like I've really been working on spirituality lately and, you know, cause I, you hit 36, I hit 70. And, um, when you let go of those old knots, and sometimes you're afraid to, the process of untying them could be painful. But boy, does it feel good, be it mythologies about yourself, about your family, um, ties to things that are destructive. It's, um, 
it's important. It's important to look at those knots and see if they need untying. One of the comment, which was about community, also because I recently went through this surgery. So boy, am I thankful for my shul community. We're a small group. We haven't seen each other much in person since COVID, but we meet once a week on Zoom. And tell you, people have dropped by food and sent things. And, you know, I feel badly for anyone who doesn't have that kind of community. And throughout my life, be it in Israel or here in Toronto, um, a small modern Orthodox community, and I see among the Haredim too, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, people really look out for each other. Those beautiful. are my comments. Beautiful. Thank you for those comments, Lauren. And Rafua Shalema, wishing you a speedy recovery. I'm Thank glad you. you. Glad you could still learn with us even while you're going through that. And wishing you strength. Knees are, knees are, uh, that's a tough one. Wishing you strength. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a few comments. This is a Hi. to unpack today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Teaching. Um, one thought I had, and then I want to comment a little bit about the modern family. Um, but I was thinking about untying. And, you know, we are habitually think of doing teshuva as healing a wound or something that's broken. But in fact, uh, in experiencing with a friend, actually two friends that had uh, a broken relationship with their sisters, that to do teshuva and to really come together in some way or come to terms with that inside is really untying a knot because bioenergetically, when you have a relationship that's blocked like that, it, um, it just really uh, continues to affect you, particularly if that person dies before it's resolved. So really untying that knot on a bioenergetic and spiritual level, it relates. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is really bad. Um, but about the, po the family, so I think Marx was right in the sense that as a feminist at this time, there were very oppressive roles in the traditional bourgeois family and that we've done a lot to break out of them uh, to the extent of sometimes throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I think that the aspect now of modern families, even though yes, there is a spiritual dimension to two souls finding each other and wanting to form a family of whatever gender or how, how, whatever that looks like. Um, it is means in a transactional way of negotiating all these traditional words. And certainly we want our girls to be brought up with being able to aspire outside of those conditioned family roles of the past and a way, way past. So um, I think the essence of family and particularly when raising children. And there are a lot of forms, a lot of forms that family can take. Um, but yeah, I think it's right. Yeah, there were uh, dysfunctions and ceilings, particularly for women built into that. They were also oppressive to men in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for that. Um, I, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and and, I, and I, I actually do value going to an extreme to, uh, to, to make historical corrections um, because that's often what we do, right? We go to an extreme to correct an injustice um, and then we end up coming back a little bit. And, and so I, 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 I wouldn't be critical of, of uh, or too critical of those who um, called the whole 
kind of you know family infrastructure as it's developed uh, into question. Um, you know, one other thanks. So thank you for those points. Uh, and and uh, just one other thing that I'm thinking about. You know, we all have different relationships to family um, and, and families. And one of the things that I often think about these days is um, the abolishing of the orphanage in America, um, because what we decided was that children need families. America decided children need families. And so we got rid of the orphanage and we created a foster care system. And that, why? Because every child needs a family was the idea. And so um, now we have 700,000 children who pass through the foster care system in America each year um, because they should be in a family, they should be in a home rather than an institution. Now that's interesting. I mean, as you know, that socialist idea, or going back to the kibbutz idea, you know, the children living in their, in the, in, well, not completely living, of course, but uh, partially living in children facilities. Um, so, um, and, and, and today there uh, actually Andrew Solomon, if you've read any of his books on depression, um, he, uh, he's writing a book now on new models of family that are emerging. And I'm actually curious because I'm, 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 I'm too judgmental when it comes to this. I'm too old school, traditional, you know, the idea of open relationships and polygamy and, and kind of new definitions of family are things I can't relate to so much. So I'm, I'm curious to tap into his work. Hi, Rabbi, this is Eric. I have a question based off of something that you brought up earlier about Great. protests. Uh, the notion that uh, you, you were quoting that if we don't protest, uh, you know, that it's the response, you know, that the, the, the deeds fall on the responsibility of the family. Uh, the notion is how do you, um, how do you balance the notion of protests, like the, the ill wills, not the ill wills, but the, the challenges of set of actions in actions and words committed by family with the concept of peace in the family above all right. else. Love it. Okay. I, I, here, here's the four points of my spectrum. I'm going to type it on the side. Number one, shalom. Number two, machloket. Number three, tocha. Number four, protest. Tell me, and I'm sure we could add more to that spectrum. But sometimes we need to go on one end of the spectrum. That is peace in the family. Sometimes we can go one step more con co confrontational, which is machloket, disagreement. Okay, it's going to be tolerance, but it's going to be respectful tolerance. Uh, then there's number three, which is tocha, some level of rebuke some level of disapproval. Judgment comes into place. Machloket says, okay, we have a disagreement. It's a respectful disagreement. There's tolerance. Now we're getting to um, some level of judgment, some level of, of rebuke. And four would be protest. Four would be protest. Um, each of those four, I think, has their own place. Um, and, uh, and I would suggest in the family unit, uh, it should really take a lot to have protest. Uh, you know, if, if, if my kids want a puppy dog and they're protesting outside my room, you know, <laughs> you know, for their, for their puppy dog, you know, that, you know, that we, we can accept that, but protest against family, you know, we can't expect someone to protest their father's business, you know what I mean? Or mother's business. Right. So the idea of, of protest within family um, is, 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 is a very tricky thing. Actually, we saw this with this current presidential administration, people in the family who were publicly denouncing 
um, which is kind of a, you know, it's kind of an intense thing when it happens. So protests, I, I, I would make very limited. I, 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 this model, I would almost put more in community. Where in the Jewish community would I protest another Jew? Okay, this is not exactly family, but it's like family. So once I boycotted, I boycotted the largest kosher producer in America. This was a very painful thing to do, right? Because historically anti-Semites, you know, protested. But we launched that. And now Jews were publicly boycotting Jews. Um, what does it mean to um, uh, what does it mean for Jews to protest Jews or Jews to protest a Jewish organization or Jews to protest against an Israeli policy? This is very complicated. Okay, but then we get the community, then we get to society. Okay, so let's go back to your point about family. Family, I would put in the first three categories. Protest, let's reserve that for mostly for community and society. Shalom, machloket, and tochacha. There is a place to rebuke someone in one's family who has crossed the moral line. Um, and that's also really painful and hard. Um, but mostly it's going to fall out in shalom and machloket. And as we know, the traditional reason for lighting Shabbat candles is shalom bayit. Shalom bayit is so central to our tradition. We should do all we can to maintain peace in the home. Now, of course, this can be, a, a you know, just like family can be oppressive, Shalom Bayit can be oppressive, right? People have invoked, some of the Haredi rabbis have, have, have told women to hold by Shalom Bayit instead of creating marital discord, right? Don't file for divorce, Shalom Bayit, right? That's, of course, an abuse of their rabbinic power, in my belief. Of course, there's, there's a, there's a, they have this this value of family, which relates differently to mine, um, and, you know, and, you know, want to silence or calm down people like that. And to be sure, I do think it's a great mitzvah that if people are about to get divorced and someone is able to intervene and help them to reunite in a way that's healthy and, and productive, um, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. Or if a parent-child are about to uh, disconnect, um, or siblings, whatever the case is, if someone can intervene to bring shalom to such an encounter, it's an amazing thing. And we should be road face shalom to, to pursue. So the main operating, uh, operating like instructions, shalom. Do everything you can for shalom, for peace. When all else fails, um, then we're going to have to find some other approaches, right? Um, but, you know, um, uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, uh, said in his On Being podcast was that we tend to be on better behavior with non-family, right? Um, because, you know, because people can walk away, right? If I'm, in, if I'm in interfaith dialogue and I offend you, just be like, forget you. Like, I don't need to have, keep having coffee with you, you know? Um, but with family, you can offend them because, okay, they're probably still going to show up at the Hanukkah party, you know? You know, uh, uh, and and there he was talking about, and 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 in this way, I respectfully kind of uh, slightly disagree with him. That um, that's why we can we can be a little bit he wouldn't say meaner, uh, but a little rougher in interdenominational affairs than interfaith affairs. He was uh, and uh, he uh, Jonathan Sachs was not an interdenominational hero, whereas he was an interfaith uh, role model. Um, on the interfaith level, he built bridges, and on denominations, he 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 really kind of burnt bridges. Um, and and his his argument there was would be you can really say what you think to other denominations because you're still a part of the Jewish family, right? You can't really separate you know yourselves from each other, although maybe you can. Um, 
But uh, but on the global conflict level, we can't afford for Jewish Muslim relations, Jewish Christian relations, you know, you know, all that to not go well because there's too much at stake. Jews are, are, are unlikely to start killing other Jews. Right. Um, you know, but uh, but wars can happen and really, you know, so there's a lot more at stake. And anyways, that, that was that was a very long winded answer. Unfortunately, most of these cases are case by case um, uh, where we have to try to work it out. Um, and one of the problems is to, to remain in that messy spot, because most of our relationships are neither perfect nor are horrible. And sometimes we want to move to spaces where it's one of the one or the other. Right. Um, you know, I want to only be in relationships that feel really good or I want to get rid of relationships that aren't really, really good. But there's another middle space, which is most of our relationships, which are complicated complicated relationships that sometimes feel good and sometimes really don't feel good at all. Um, sometimes they feel loving and sometimes they feel like we're taking advantage of or being mistreated or whatever the case is. And um, and I, I think there we want to do all we can, bracketing extreme cases, to hold on to the complexity of existing in that space rather than needing to um, release that relationship, um, you know, wherever possible. Um, of course, there are times we have to release it, but anytime we can work towards shalom for ourselves and for others, um, the the impact can be can be really great. Okay, one more person. Um, it seems to me that the nuclear family today has so many pressures against it, that it's very difficult to survive. Yeah. Well, can you identify some of those pressures? Um, well, you want to have a family dinner and the two teenagers come with their iPhones and never look up. Oh, oh, oh yes, right. Okay, right. So, um, right, that when we... Um, when we think of, of, of relationships from self-gain perspectives um, and a very comparative model, it is very hard to be content in a relationship, right? Hey, how come you're not as cool as that, uh, as those parents? Those parents bought their kid an iPhone, right? <laughs> um, you know, or in an over-sexualized um, economy, um, it is very hard to remain physically attracted to one's partner um, because we just see... Uh, an over-sexualized uh, world all over the place um, of, of the way we see TV shows and movies and the whole pornography industry, this whole sense of, um, of, of bodies and of, of sex and why one's own sex life can never be as good, one's own partner can never be attractive enough, and oneself, one, the, one's own self-loathing of one's body and of one's sexual performance, one's own self. Um, and and also with siblings, one of my one of my children commented uh, to the other one recently. They said, "How come we're so nice to each other when we're out in public, but when we get home, we fight with each other?" Right? Um, which is interesting. I mean, it, it's true. They play so nicely when they're in public, and they come home and they'll and they'll kind of get in an argument much more easily. Um, and so and so these things are, uh, um, uh, you know, these things are are really challenging, and the threats to the family unit are great. Um, and the great opportunities in our time also pose threats. The idea of women in the workplace is a wonderful thing 
what a wonderful thing that uh, to be breaking through those barriers. And there's still so far to go of women in executive roles, of you know, women's leadership in society. And yet we, we don't have to diminish how great that is by also acknowledging that creates enormous stresses in the home, right? Because some men might say, I will pull back from my career and some won't. And how does, how do, how do you build a family of two working parents? Um, and what if they're two ambitiously working parents? This is very challenging. Um, and yet, how do you sustain a family in today's economy with only one? Um, and so the great, the great gains are also enormous, uh, pose enormous challenges. And then the transience, the transience of, of careers, not to mention the screens. Anyways, the list goes on and on in terms of what those, what those challenges and threats are. And, um, and so I, I, I hope that, um, um, we can unravel and untie uh, relationships and bonds that really do need to be. And this can be liberating. This can be healing uh, to release, to release what we really don't need in our lives. And not only what we don't need, but we don't have obligations to. Um, and also um, to realize that there are knots we really can and should actively tighten communities in an age where communities are breaking down, families when there's so many risks and threats to families. The, the self, when the self is becoming so diluted, I talked about the virtues of the extended mind, but also the self is so diluted as to who I am. Think about how one portrays themselves on social media versus the actual self, right? We can construct multiple public selves that are, are drastically different from, um, from the self. And, and then here I want to bring us back to what I think is one of the top five central Jewish ideas, which is living in the struggle. Most of our knots are neither to be unraveled nor to be tightened, but to live in the struggle of knots that are, are weak. They are loosely tied. And that's scary because we know our mind is not what it used to be. Our body is not what it used to be. Our family doesn't look like what we may have imagined it would look like. Our community doesn't feel like how we think community might be, right? But that doesn't mean we have to let go of it all, right? We have these knots that are loosely tied and it's holding things together. And sometimes what you do with loosely knots rather than unravel them or tighten them is tie a few other loose knots, you know, loose knots because multiple loose knots can help to hold something up. Um, and so in a, in a world where um, um, we, we, we all work to stay afloat together. May we all be blessed to uh, be, tight, be, tight, be tightly knotted together with love and compassion. Have a great day.